it is the first of the month, and so we do communion, but what I also like to do is share a little bit about my own journey in terms of things that God is putting on my heart, ways that I feel like I'm being challenged to grow as a disciple of Jesus. I believe in a holistic approach to discipleship, which means learning to invite God to show me how I need to be growing heart, soul, mind, and strength in my relationships, my deepening capacity for prayer and worship, for deepening understanding of what God says in his word and how to live in response to that, and then how to serve in practical ways. So what I do every month is I kind of just ask God, what's one thing in each area that you want to kind of uh, stretch me on, grow me in, and uh, it really helps me to grow just beyond the practices that kind of come easy to me and force me into a more holistic uh, practice of faith formation. So in the area of relationships, I'm going to really going to be focusing, focusing on listening with care. That's part of our BLESS acronym in the Covenant Church. Listening is a skill that needs to be developed. I've become aware of just how often I am waiting for someone to finish talking so that I can then tell them something. And learning to listen and listen well, have follow-up questions, to suspend your own egocentricity, it's almost embarrassing how difficult that is for me to do in some context. And so that's something that God's really saying, that's an area that I want you to work on in your core relationships in June. Went to the men's retreat last weekend. It was really amazing. I had a whole list of stuff that I felt like God put on my heart, and I knew that I wasn't just going to be able to kind of process it on Sunday night and be like, oh, that's great, and then see a men's retreat next year. I made a commitment to myself, and I resolved, I said, God, I will pray and journal through these uh, themes and ideas over the month of June because there's a lot there to unpack, and there's a lot there for me to process, and I'm really looking forward to doing it. I've already started doing it with my wife, and it's been really, really good, but I want that to continue in June. Uh, also in June, I've been invited by Czech ABC to kind of do an overview and revamp their Old Testament survey course. So I'm going to be starting on that in June, which is always uh, feels a little bit like being thrown into the deep end in terms of trying to come up with a synopsis and a good overview of every single book in the Old Testament. Um, so we'll see how that goes. And then strength, just serving through our soccer team in this community. We did it yesterday, Soccer Saturday. It's so fun, so great to get to know the kids and to be praying for them and to hopefully just being a great, enthusiastic coach for them. But also, late-breaking, there's another way that I'm going to be serving this month. And it wasn't on my radar until I came in this morning because our family um, signed up to do the cleanup from the potluck that's happening after the service this morning, except that it's my youngest daughter's birthday. So a, mo most of my family, by most I mean everyone except for me, is going to eat and then kind of leave and get ready for the party this afternoon. So I'm going to be cleaning up. That's really important for me to do. However, if you are also someone who likes to clean up, or more even importantly, if you don't like to clean up, and like me, you'd rather just do some help in a different way, and you are like, wow, I want to grow as a disciple of Jesus. I have an opportunity for you, even today. So that, that's one way, yeah, nice try. <laughs> thanks, but no thanks, Pastor. So that'll be fun. Oh, did I, did I show the picture of the t-shirt, Justin? Sorry, yeah, I, I forgot to mention that. I was, I was uh, Googling heart, soul, mind, and strength, and this t-shirt came up. And I think it's an awesome t-shirt. And I, got a f I found the guy's website. He's a graphic designer, but he didn't have a link to how you could purchase a sh shirt. But I'm going to track him down because I love that shirt, and I'm going to buy it and wear it. We are in the Gospel of Mark. We're moving through the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse, to understand and get a full scope of the Jesus presented to us in the Gospels. 
Mark is the shortest gospel, but it's very, very dense. Mark doesn't give us a lot of details because he's really concerned with just packing in over a short duration as much information and key information as he can about Jesus. And we are in the 10th chapter of Mark, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 12 because that's what we're looking at today, and it's a really amazing passage that has something to say to all of us this morning. So Mark 10, verses 1 to 12. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. And they said, Well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because of your heart, it's because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And so, they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So in verse 2, these Pharisees come to Jesus and they're trying to test him. Some translations might say trap him. They're asking a loaded question. They're not really looking for guidance on the issue. They have an agenda behind the question. And just like a reporter might put a microphone in front of a, an athlete after a particular loss or a controversial play or someone jams a microphone in front of a politician hoping to get a sound bite that you can then remove and uh, you know, uh, maybe place out of context or serve your own narrative, the Pharisees are looking to trip Jesus up. They're looking to get him to say something self-incriminating because at this point in Jesus' ministry, they can't figure out how he could be doing all these amazing things while claiming to be God come in human form because that's blasphemous to them. So they're trying to attack him in terms of his fidelity and faithfulness to Scripture. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The reason why we know that's not really a legitimate question is because the answer is yes. That, that wasn't a point of controversy in the first century. But the verb, tested him by asking, implies that they kept on asking. They were badgering Jesus because they wanted to understand on what grounds was a man able to divorce his spouse. What did Moses command you, Jesus says. So he gets a question, and it's loaded and then he responds not by going into an answer, but by asking a question. That's a good strategy. Whenever you get loaded questions as a Christian, I always get loaded questions when people find out that I'm a pastor. Normal exchange, they find out that I'm a pastor. Oh, what do you believe about gay marriage? That's a loaded question. Oh, where do you stand on predestination versus free will? The, and those questions are often disjointed from everything else that has happened in that, into that relationship. And what I've learned is that I need to ask that question. Why is that question so important to you? Or let's unpack that a little bit more. Or of all the questions you could ask me, I'm wondering why that was the lead for you. Can you help explain that to me? That's what we're seeing Jesus do. What did Moses command you? He's putting the ball back in their court. He wants to kind of see where this is coming from. 
And they said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And that's true in Deuteronomy 24. It says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he can write her a certificate of divorce. And it gives a number of uh, layers of how that can happen. But that's the basic principle, is that Jewish men were empowered to divorce their wives. Now, that wasn't the controversial part. What became controversial is as time went by, and Kevin Drieger talked about this a few weeks ago, you had Jewish rabbis and, and speaking authoritatively and saying, well, under what conditions is a man allowed to divorce his wife? What does, what does the Torah mean when it uses the word indecent? It's a little bit of a vague word. It can also be translated as uncleanness. And so rabbis talked about what, is, what does that mean? What are the grounds for labeling a wife, in this case, unclean or indecent? So you fast forward till Jesus' time, and there are kind of two major schools of thought. The school of Shammai, Rabbi Shammai, the school of Rabbi Hillel. The school of Shammai says a man may not divorce his wife unless there's some issue of unchastity within her. The school of Hillel would say divorce is permissible on much broader grounds. So Shammai says only in the case of marital unfaithfulness. Everything else, not a grounds for divorce. The school of Hillel says you, a man is legally able to write his wife a certificate of divorce even, and this is one of the examples that he used, she spoils a dish for him in terms of dinner burnt toast, that, broadly speaking, fits under something indecent. So you can see this school of Hillel offers a pretty broad and expansive uh, interpretational grid, which many people, many men, took advantage of. And many men, unfortunately, that rabbinic ruling allowed many Jewish men to uh, exploit and dismiss women and then to feel religiously justified in doing so. So, knowing that there are these two schools of thought in play, when are you allowed to get divorced? When are you allowed to send your wife away with the certificate of divorce, Jesus? Jesus kind of bypasses both of those schools of thought And he doesn't just go back to what Moses, the the law that was given through Moses, but he goes further back, right back to the opening chapters of the Bible, which disclose God's ultimate plan and purpose for marriage. See, Jesus is smart. He's thinking, you're asking me about what my theology of divorce is, but I can't give you my theology of divorce until I give you my theology of marriage. You have to understand what God intended for marriage And then we can have the conversation with all the particularities and complexities related to divorce. But we can't start and end the conversation with divorce as if it's some self-contained issue. So Jesus braces them by saying, well, first of all, it was because of your hearts, your hard hearts that Moses gave you that law. So Jesus is saying, yeah, God made a concession that divorce is permissible in certain circumstances, but divorce is never to be understood as part of the way things God intended creation to run. It's, it's not an inherently good thing. It's sometimes a necessary thing 
but it's not a good thing. This law, Jesus says, shouldn't be something that we should celebrate. In fact, in Malachi 2.16, through the prophet Malachi, God says, I hate divorce. I hate divorce because of what, what it does to all the parties involved. The rending, the wounding, the brokenness, the, the waves of unintended consequences, always negative and destructive, that happens, sometimes generationally, because of divorce. I hate divorce. But God does reveal in this law a gracious concession to the fact that when two people get married, it's the marriage of two sinners. And in a broken world with hearts poisoned by sin and bent towards self-centeredness, sometimes divorce is necessary. And sometimes it's the best decision in a context that's incredibly painful and difficult. So then Jesus goes right back into these opening chapters of Genesis. He says, but at the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. That's from Genesis 1, 27. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's Genesis 2, verse 24. So he's taking these two pillars of marriage. God created uh, mankind, male and female, and he gave them the institution of marriage as a vehicle through which two previously autonomous and independent individuals, image bearers, would come together and through, not just marriage, but specifically through the sexual union, would uh, be transformed into a new kind of creature that would reflect the image of God in their dynamic uh, covenant relationship in a way that was unique within all of creation. That's the Christian vision for marriage, is a covenant commitment, so it's not contractual. If you do these things, then I'll stay with you, and as long as you keep up your end of the bargain, then we'll keep going. It's covenantal, meaning I will lay down my life for you. It's a covenant commitment between a man and a woman that is meant to transform both parties into a new kind of creature. And a new kind of creature that will reflect God's love and goodness into the world. And then Those are the first two chapters of Genesis. And then the rest of the Bible is always coming back to this, um, to to how marriage, the human, this marriage relationship is meant to be a window into how God wants his relationship with his people to be. Marriage is the dominant metaphor that God uses to describe his relationship to Israel. With the birth of the church in the New Testament, the church is called the bride of Christ. In the consummation of all things, Revelation 21, John says, I saw a new heavens and a new earth coming down like a, like a bride um, dressed for, uh, prepared for her husband. And that's literally meant to be a very erotic picture of a fusion, a sexual union of two different but complementary elements of creation now becoming one. That what we see happening in marriage to become one is meant to be a signpost of what God's going to do when Jesus returns. There will no longer be a division of heaven and earth. Heaven and earth will be one. Real, material, good reality where sin has been obliterated and the full glory of God is infused in every nook and cranny. And then, and see, this is why, <clears throat> this is why it's helpful to frame all, the, all these other tangential conversations back into a theology of marriage. Because just from what I've said there, it gives you 
it might give someone a better understanding who might hear a Christian sexual ethic that says no sex outside of marriage and think, well, that's old-fashioned, that's really restrictive, that's, I can, I can think of all kinds of ways that's fairly impractical, but when you understand what sex, the function that sex is supposed to have, which is to be this joyful exchange of complete, like literal, physical nakedness with someone you've covenanted with, right, the sexual act is about um, displaying with your body, which is what, um, displaying with your body what the rest of your life in marriage is supposed to display to that person, that I am in vulnerability, exposing who I am to you, and I am loving you in a way of complete nakedness, physical nakedness, emotional nakedness, spiritual nakedness, and I'm only doing that with you because you're the only person in this world that I've covenanted with. And so every time, you know, we say that the marriage isn't even, uh, is consummated with the sexual act. It's not even fully, a couple isn't fully married until they come together sexually. And then every time a married couple has sex after that, it's like a covenant renewal ceremony. It's a way of using your body to say, I love you, I'm for you, I want to lay down my life for you. And that's why Christians for 2,000 years have had very rigid boundaries around sexuality. It's not because sex is bad, it's because it's so good. It's not because it's evil, it's because it's so powerful. And when sex gets channeled in the context of a covenant relationship, there is something deeply uh, healing and empowering uh, that it does to the relationship and to each individual. But when it's done outside of that context, although there are elements of pleasure in it, obviously, we're using it in a way that causes it to sometimes do damage because it can only be leveraged for something beautiful and transformative in the context of a covenanted marriage relationship. And you know, this, this vision of marriage is so central that Paul in Ephesians 5, this is one of my favorite verses, it's really, really interesting, verse 31 and 33, he says, he's quoting from the same verse that Jesus is quoting from, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh and then Paul says, see, this is a profound mystery, this marriage covenant and the sexual act that fuses these two image bearers together. He says, this is a mystery, but when I'm quoting that verse, I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. That the sexual union and the dynamism and the joy and the electricity that can be there when there's a high trust, full vulnerability, passionate exposure to one another, he says, that's as close to the side of heaven as you get to getting a full window into the dynamic, passionate, transforming love that Christ has for his church. That's a microcosm. It's a dim hint. We see through glass darkly. As powerful as that, the, the joy and the pleasure that comes from sex can be, Paul says it's just a hint of what we'll experience in Revelation 21 when Jesus returns and fuses together a new heavens and a new earth. So Jesus is bringing these Pharisees back to that vision of marriage. And then in verse 9 he says, therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. And he's making it really clear, and we're going to see this in, a, in the next verse, because the disciples ask Jesus again about this, because they're like, whoa, this, is, this seems really, really high standard. Like, we're, this seems harsh almost. Because Jesus does seem to be implying 
that in the restoration of all things and those who would follow him, that there ideally wouldn't be any divorce. Now notice Jesus never condemns this solution, this um, escape mechanism offered by the law out of God's grace. But Jesus is making it clear that it's less than best. It's not God's ideal. God hates divorce. And even when divorce is justified, and there are uh, many contexts where I think the scripture gives us permission to say divorce is justified in these contexts. Even when it's justified, it's still heartbreaking because it's not what God would have wanted. And again, just like God won't force us to be in a relationship with him, he's not going to force two people to love each other. So they have to cooperate and grow in that love and forgiveness. So when they're in the house again, now it's just the disciples and Jesus, they ask Jesus about this again. Like they're like, was that grandstanding in front of everybody? Like, because it kind of sounded like you were saying divorce isn't an option for disciples. And then he says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Almost no commentator that I have read that I think um, has done their homework thinks that Jesus in verse 11 is speaking to legitimate divorce. They believe he's speaking to the common practice of, yeah, you know what, I woke up today and uh, woke up on the wrong side of the bed and there's kind of been a string of uh, incidents with my wife lately and I'm just going to write a certificate of, of divorce. Jesus is clearly speaking against what was common practice in some pockets of Jewish culture to really see the, the female partner in a marriage relationship as more or less dispensable. And he's saying, if you do that, if you send your wife away and then go marry another woman, according to some rabbis and some very loose traditions, you're in the clear. But with my interpretation, you've committed adultery on, on, your, on your wife. That's not a legitimate divorce. You don't get to just send your wife away because she's displeasing to you. Disciples in my kingdom will fight tooth and nail, and especially men and husbands in my kingdom, and Paul impacts this later in Ephesians, they are called to follow in my pattern, which is I lay down my life for the church. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Not, I'll love you as long as you perform, but if you stop performing, then see you. That's not the way Jesus loved us. He loved us unto death, even death on a cross. So Jesus is reestablishing a new standard and commitment for everybody in the marriage. And then he also includes women as well. And if she divorces her husband, and that's because in Roman uh, culture at that time, a wife could divorce her husband. And he's saying both people are equally responsible to be committed to this powerful, mysterious, important thing that God has created called marriage. And so he's not creating a new kind of legalism because there were instances where divorce was justifiable. But he's pushing against the practice of easy divorce, of seeing relationships as commodities, as seeing people as things which we use to gratify ourselves. And then when it's no longer kind of when the 
our output and, and kind of what, what we're getting out of the relationship is kind of really skewed and we're giving a lot, we're getting very little. When the return on investment's kind of low, then we move on. That is very clearly what Jesus is speaking to. A very consumeristic, transactional understanding of relationships opposed to a covenantal one where come hell or high water, I'm going to love you in sickness and in health till death do us part. So a few words this morning of application to a few different uh, people in this room. First of all, to those of you who are married. And I understand that when you talk about marriage in a church and you talk about God's grand design for marriage, you have this really ideal picture in your mind. That's an awesome thing to hold. But we have to also keep reading past Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and get to Genesis 3 where the curse came upon the world because of Adam's sin. And the reason why that's important is because we might talk about marriage in very ideal ways, but no one's marriage is ideal. And sometimes you can be in a marriage and you can look at other people, maybe other Christians or other people in the church, and you can project all kinds of uh, perfections and, and strength and health on, their, uh, on those people's marriage, and it can make you go back into your marriage and think, well, my marriage is really hard. It's challenging. It's not this uh, picture of two becoming one and everything's always good and we're just always feels like we're growing. There are hard seasons, and maybe you're in a hard season right now. Marriage is good ground. It is a good gift from God, but it's also a curse because of the fall. And so even having a good marriage and a healthy marriage, that takes a lot of work. My wife and I have been married for 17 years. And sometimes we have conversations where we're like, I can't believe that we're just learning this, or we're just starting down this road, or we're just learning how to love each other well in this way. But even just a solid marriage takes a lot of work. And marriage, I say this often, I think it's just important. Marriage isn't about our happiness, it's about our holiness. And if you're married, you have to drill that into your mind and in your heart. Marriage is ultimately, God has brought that person into your life to help you to grow in Christ-like holiness and to learn to love as God would have you love. And so it's not that being happy in your marriage or pursuing happiness in your marriage is a bad thing. Of course, we want to be happy. It's just that's not the ultimate point. The point is to grow in holiness. And you grow in holiness by practicing lovemaking. That's how you grow in holiness in your marriage. You practice lovemaking. You literally make love. And in all kinds of decisions, you make love. You make the decision to love. Instead of relying on love to be a reflexive emotion or relying on infatuation, you instead set your heart and your intention to say, I'm going to love this person. And I'm going to figure out how to love this person with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every part of who I am I'm going to honor God that way. Timothy Keller in his book, Meaning of Marriage, which everybody in this room should read, whether you're uh, married or unmarried, young or old, he says this, in any relationship, there's going to be frightening spells in which your feelings of love will dry up. And when that happens, you must remember that the essence of marriage is that it is a covenant. It's a commitment. It's a promise of future love. So what do you do? You do the acts of love despite your lack of feeling. You may not feel tender. You may not feel sympathetic. You may not feel eager to please. But in your actions, you must be tender. 
You must be understanding. You must be forgiving. You must be helpful. And if you do that, as time goes on, you will not only get through the dry spells, but those dry spells will become less frequent and they'll become less deep. And you will become more constant in your feelings. And that's what can happen if you decide to love. To the unmarried in this room, let me say this. Marriage won't save you. I know a lot of people are waiting for that next relationship that, 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 to, to get married and then all these issues and insecurities and identity issues and purpose issues, they're going to fade because that's the missing piece. And the scripture is very honest in saying marriage is a gift, but it won't save you. And if you're looking to it to save you, you're putting a pressure on it that it won't be able to deliver into your life. And you're going to find yourself resentful very quickly within that marriage relationship. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.28 he, he's, about as, um, he's about as upfront as you can get on this. He says, I want those who, are married, those who marry to know that you're going to experience trouble in this life, and I'm just trying to spare you this. He just says that at the Corinthian church. Not wrong to marry. You just need to know if you're going to get married, you're going to have a, uh, expanding complexities and, and hardships in your life. And I'd just rather you didn't. So again, he's just saying... If you're unmarried, you can serve the Lord with, without distraction. And if you're married, that's a totally good thing. You can honor God that way. But don't go into marriage thinking that it's going to make your life easier because you now have a new calling, which is submit to one another as you submit to Christ and love one another in light of Christ's love for you. If you are unmarried... I think the scripture would say, take advantage of your singleness. This is a unique season in your life. Maybe it's going to be a long season. But Paul says this in Corinthians, that, you know, your interests are divided when you're married. You still have godly interests, um, loving your spouse and maybe eventually children. But someone who's single, who's unmarried, is able to focus fully on, um, Paul says, pleasing the Lord. There's just a flexibility that comes with that. And so whenever we find ourselves in a season of singleness then instead of seeing that as some kind of curse, we see it as a blessing, as an opportunity to serve God, and then if God moves us into a season of marriage, that's wonderful. But take advantage of your season of singleness. Serve, love, explore, travel, love people deeply as a single. It's an important time. I also want to speak to those who are divorced, who have moved through the waters of divorce. God hates divorce, and that means God hates what happened to you and all the damage that you had to absorb because of your divorce. Even if it was the right thing to do, regardless of the circumstances, God hates what happened to you. It was less than God's ideal and it breaks God's heart. And even when it's the right decision, divorce still leaves wounds and there's a lot of healing that has to happen but I think it's important, and I want to proclaim and make sure you hear this, that in the kingdom of God, divorce is not some unforgivable sin. And if you've walked through the waters of divorce, you should never feel like you have to live as some kind of a second-class citizen in God's kingdom. Full restoration is possible for you, full healing for how 
or divorce or divorces have broken your heart. Full healing is available to you for the wounds that you bear from your divorce in and through Jesus' mercy and grace. And because of the cross, the promises of God are just as open to you as they are to anybody else. And then to everybody in this room, I would end by saying it's so important in this context of marriage and love and relationships and all the attending complexities that can emerge out of relationships that go sour, whether friendship or romantic, we need to learn to make Jesus our treasure. If Jesus is an afterthought and we're putting the weight of our identity and hope and love and fulfillment on another person, that is a crushing weight for them to bear and they will always disappoint you. But if we learn to make Jesus our treasure, it frees us to move into these relationships in a way that allows that relationship, in the best sense of the word, to just be a good relationship, to just be a good friendship. That friendship doesn't, ha- that person doesn't have to be God to you. They don't have to deliver on all these fronts. Your spouse doesn't have to be perfect. When we make Jesus our treasure, and that takes a long time to learn how to do that. That's not an overnight thing. But when we make Jesus central, all the other relationships find their proper groove and they find their proper rhythm. It's an application of Matthew 6.33. You know, seek first the kingdom of God and then all these other things will be given to you. Life works best when God is at the center, when Jesus is our treasure, and we're learning to play that out in our relationships. If Christians don't develop a deeply fulfilling love relationship with Jesus, all of our horizontal relationships will suffer because a burden will be placed on them that no human being can bear. And so we need to develop a fulfilling love relationship with Jesus, heart, soul, mind, and strength. One where we rest in the truth that we're fully known and yet fully loved, and that will transform our relationships. And that is the key to leading us into new dimensions of relational freedom and joy and fulfillment. Let's pray. God, for all of us in this room, this topic of divorce touches all of us because at its heart, it's about a pulling apart because of human sin, a relationship that was meant to be good. And everybody in this room has experienced that, has experienced the dissolution of a good relationship, has experienced the tearing apart of something that has such potential dream-shattered, betrayals. And so God, I pray for everybody in this room, and I pray that we would learn to make you our treasure. You would bind up the brokenhearted, you would heal our wounds, and you would lead us deeper into your love so that we could be freed to love our spouses and our friends and our children and our co-workers and our brothers and sisters in Christ and this community the way we were supposed to. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, that's awesome. Let me send you out with a benediction. Just a reminder, if you are a guest or visitor, the first Sunday of every month, we just do a a potluck lunch downstairs. If you want to stay and eat with us, that'd be super awesome. You don't have to have brought anything. We know you didn't realize it was happening, but there's always extra food. So that's happening directly after the service. 
As you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may you make Jesus your treasure. May his love bring healing to the places of wounding from relational strife. And may his love create new opportunities for broken relationships to be restored. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship and power of the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. And all of God's people said, Amen. See you guys downstairs.